Welcome to the Joan Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. It is my pleasure to uh, welcome Betsy Fisher-Martin here to our Brown Bag Lunch series. I think she knows many of you in this room, it looks like. Um, and that's understandable because she has been at NBC for how long altogether? Oh my gosh, uh, almost 22 years. 22 years. And almost all of that time at Meet the Press, uh, which Betsy told me, and something I did not know, is the oldest television show of any kind uh, still, still, in, still operating. It's amazing. <laughs> 1947. 1947. 47. Pretty incredible. Um, she has been watching the news change and the Sunday morning, you know, pundit shows change uh, for the last 20 years. And uh, those shows are still appointment television for many people. They are uh, a good bit of, uh, of what people are talking about on Monday morning often. And they are in this very partisan environment, uh, showcases for, you know, for finding ways to have the argument uh, without having it face-to-face. As Betsy was telling me, one of the hard things now is getting people to, who are in a, not in agreement to go on together, to get them to be in the same place. In any event, we're in a different world that has changed since your time at uh, Meet the Press. Television news itself, of course, is undergoing great changes along with every other part of news. We're very eager to hear what you have to say about that. Welcome to the Shorenstein Center. Happy to be here. Thanks By the way, I think I should also would be remiss if I didn't mention the founding director of the Shorenstein Center, Marvin Kalb, mm-hmm. was a longtime host of Meet the Press. So we have a particular, yeah. a particular attachment. Thank you. Well, I'm so glad to be here, and I, I'm really eager to take your questions. But I thought I would just talk a little bit about how the show has changed over the past 20 years in terms of technology um, and what we've done in the recent past. I just left Meet the Press in July to um, take over a position of overseeing our political coverage at NBC. But um, I did spend uh, 20 years with the program, starting first as an intern. And so I want to talk about how that technology has changed what we're doing with it now, and then kind of where I see uh, television news in general uh, adapting to new technologies, social media, et cetera. Um, When I first started at the show as an intern, part of my job on Sunday morning was clipping the newspapers with a ruler, um, putting together information, doing research for the show. Uh, It was all about finding information. We would have... Senator Bob Dole on the show one Sunday morning, I would be calling our affiliate in Kansas City to see what was on the front page and if it was anything pertinent to please fax it over to our newsroom. And obviously that's all changed with the advent of the internet, uh, but it's a lot of our job now is essentially cultivating information and then trying to distill it. We no longer have to really search uh, for news articles for information. I mean, I would have, you know, filing cabinets of news clips that I would, you know, put together in in research packets. And, um, you know, for me professionally, it was a great job because I, uh, after I was an intern, I was the researcher for many years. And nobody else had access to this information. I could hoard all of the files. And, of course, any time Tim Russert needed something, he was calling me to go through my files. Nowadays, you know, we can just jump right on Google, and uh, it's, it's much easier to find information, but there's so much of it out there. 
Um, I, but I use, for example, Twitter now, and I'm sure many of you do the same way, is really a news feed, um, finding information, seeing what's going on, um, and cultivating that and putting together the program every week. It's, there's so much out there. How do we present to the viewers what's the most important aspect of that? Um, so that's, that's really how I've seen the change, the research capabilities have changed. And, you know, Twitter can sometimes, you know, you have the good sides of it and the bad sides of it. Um, but we've also found it very useful in terms of marketing the program. Things that we do on the program, for instance, uh, we have people live tweet the show. So we like to think of a broadcast like Meet the Press as a live kind of sporting event. Um, you're having both sides of an issue being debated, and people can get onto Twitter. Uh, we can put out information about the show, news that's made on the show. It used to be we would kind of market the show and put out a press release about the show to the wires and hope that the wires would pick up the, uh, what was, news was made on the show so that it would be in the newspaper the next morning on Monday. We would talk about having Monday morning headlines, and that doesn't exist anymore. By the time Monday morning rolls around, if the news cycle is over with and done, uh, now we put something out on Twitter that's happened on the show, whether or not you're even watching it, and you can see it take off on wire stories, on blogs. Um, even during the week, if we put out news about the show, I remember um, one fateful day we had uh, uh, Senator, uh, soon-to-be Senator Rand Paul, we had scheduled for a big interview on Meet the Press, and on Friday he was caught up in, um, do you remember the issue about uh, civil rights and uh, Hannah's shaking her head over there. Yeah, so Friday they pulled the plug on the interview. And, you know, typically we would have maybe made an announcement on Meet the Press that Sunday morning that that was happening or put out a press release that we, you know, who the new lineup of the show was, that it's changed and wouldn't really get much attention. And I remember sending out a tweet about it and just took off like wildfire across Twitter. Um, all of a sudden we had, you know, newspapers calling, reporters calling, television stations calling, and it sort of blew up. And it was, for me, the most vivid example I, I can remember early on of, of Twitter and the kind of the power of just one tweet uh, really, generating, really generating a lot of news. Um, some of the things that we've done on the program, uh, we hosted, for example, we did a partnership with Facebook. Uh, in 2012, and we had a debate where we got all of the Republican presidential candidates for president to debate in New Hampshire. And for us, partnering with Facebook was a great way to have that engagement with um, people uh, across the country could submit questions um, in somewhat in real time and that we could facilitate that discussion. And, and frankly, it was an... Um, was to our advantage because the candidates liked that aspect of the partnership. And when we were trying to fight for a debate and get a debate, having a partnership with Facebook was actually really worked to our advantage to get the candidates to agree to do the debate in the first place. Um, so that's a model that I think you will you'll see develop over time, more partnerships between Facebook and Twitter and news organizations. We were speaking earlier, and Twitter now has done a partnership with Nielsen Ratings. As you all know, television sort of lives and dies by Nielsen Ratings, where now you Twitter will actually be generating a rating, so to speak, of Twitter activity about a program. So you will see um, a show, and this is in news and in entertainment, as much as it's talked about online, 
for example, a show you know generates 28,000 tweets, the Nielsen folks will say that's reaching 2.8 million eyeballs. So it's a way for um, television networks to really be more engaged on Twitter and to draw viewers to their television broadcasts. At the end of the day, uh, we're moving toward you know the second screen experience as well, where people. Um, <coughs> You know, television networks are trying to embrace this because they know people are using their tablets, but how do we have people use their tablets and still watch our television content? So, for example, we did a partnership with um, uh, a firm called ZBox. I don't know if any of you have heard of it, but uh, it enables what's going on in live television to also you have a feed on your tablet. So, for example, on Meet the Press, during Meet the Press, you will see a Twitter feed on ZBox. You log in, you say, well, you want to watch Meet the Press. In real time, you'll see the cultivated Twitter feed of what's going on, who's talking about the show, um, what the panelists are saying. And then it will also provide information about the content of the show. If we were talking about a graphic or a, a newspaper article, you can see that pop up on your ZBox screen. And of course, you can also have an advertiser sponsor your content on ZBox. And so we, a television network, can generate ad revenue from that as well. So I think uh, news broadcasts are moving toward that, uh, entertainment especially. I mean, you'll see a lot of activity in the entertainment field about Twitter really driving eyeballs to television shows. And so we're constantly thinking of ways to kind of capitalize on that aspect of it. Um, we also, NBC just acquired um, a company called Stringwire, which is still sort of in the infancy age, and we kind of acquired the person who uh, invented it and is developing it as well. But the concept behind that is we have live television live events where there's a plane crash, there's an uprising somewhere, everybody is filming on their cell phones. This provides an out, uh, a way so that you can just click on a link and that live content that you're filming on your iPhone can go straight into our control rooms so that we can see at NBC or another network what is being broadcast essentially live in a private, a private feed to us and then NBC can editorially decide whether to take that feed and broadcast it out as well. So. It's like I said, it's in its infancy, but that could be a future way. Everybody has a camera, everybody, <laughs> and everybody can you know record video of things. So how do news organizations who may not be able to have reporters you know at the exact scene of something going on, uh, how are we able to get that content directly to us? Right now, what we do is we have people at the networks that are constantly monitoring Twitter and Facebook. You know when there's some sort of disaster that happens or some major news event. And this way, it can kind of go directly into, uh, into our control rooms, and we can editorially decide what we want to broadcast out. So I'll stop there and take some questions. Let, let, me, let, me, uh, let me ask a, a couple of questions first, and then we'll open it up. Take us through the week of preparing Meet the Press. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you start, does everybody go home Sunday afternoon and uh, have the afternoon off, or what happens? Usually, uh, right after the show, we will kind of put our heads together and say, "What's what do we have for next week? What do we have for next week? But, you know, in this 24-7 news cycle, that's become more difficult. Uh, because what we can think of on a Monday or Tuesday that we want to showcase on Sunday, and, and obviously the goal is to have the biggest guest on the biggest topic each week, that changes so quickly now. Um, so it's very so that process during the week in terms of booking the guest and coming and solidifying a show gets pushed later and later and later. 
So usually on a Wednesday or Thursday, we have a pretty good idea of what we want to try to cover, and we have really put out feelers to a lot of guests and saying, you know, if we want to have a discussion about X, would Senator Y be available? And it's, you know, yes, they would be available, and it's great, we'll call you back on Friday and nail it down. It used to be when we called a guest for an invitation to appear on the show that that was a very solid, you know, will you come to the dance with me? Yes, I will. Great. We'll get our, we'll go. Um, now it's a little bit more of a dance in terms of figuring out who we want that gets pushed later and later in the week. And the worst case is if you book someone on the show and then something else changes and you have to cancel a guest, which always comes back to bite you the next time. <laughs> so how many of your guests actually go to the studio? Well, we like to have most of them in the studio. Um, I find it to be a much better conversation when you have the guests there and you can have mm -hmm. a one-on-one -on -one dialogue as opposed to speaking in, in boxes. Where, where physically is Meet the Press now? On Nebraska Avenue at our Washington Bureau of NBC News. But the days have changed. I mean, it used to be back in the day that if you wanted a guest on, you would charter a plane and bring the guest to you. That does not happen anymore in, the, in this new world of news budgets. <laughs> there is no chartering planes. Um, so that's very different now. Um, especially if there's breaking news, too, then you'll, you'll take the guests from wherever you can get them. And how do you sort of compete with the other shows in terms of gets? Do you try to think of things that are... <laughs> Unique, or is everybody going for the I give away all the, the secrets here. I mean, we're, tr we're trying to get down to yeah. nuts and bolts. A lot of it is relationship building, so that you um, you have an ongoing relationship with the potential guest that you've cultivated, and you have a sense of you know when that guest is really ready to make news. Um, they will, you know, you can have that dialogue and, and, and book them on the show, but it is very competitive. Um, and, you know, there's five, you know, five other Sunday morning shows competing for the same guests, but there's also a jillion cable television shows now competing for guests. Um, will you take a guest if they say, well, I've already promised I will, I will go to, you know, whatever? It depends. It depends on the guest. <laughs> uh, a lot of times uh, in terms of the administration, for example, if they're putting out a guest, if they're putting out, you know, the Secretary of State, a lot of times they'll, they'll put out that guest and what we call it, have them do a full Ginsburg, which is based on William Ginsburg, the first, uh, the attorney for Monica Lewinsky, you'll remember? Mm -hmm. He was the first person to ever do all five Sunday morning television shows <laughs> in one morning. A full so Ginsburg. We call that the full <laughs> Ginsburg. And that used to be very rare back in 98, and he was the first person to do it. That, now it happens very frequently. Uh, the administration, the Bush administration was the same way. They will usually put out one guest and have them on all the shows, and you run through a crazy morning schedule of pre-taping interviews. And what about now the sort of sweet spot mm -hmm. of being able to be challenging to a guest, uh, but at the same time being fearful that if you are too tough, they will never come back or... You know, I mean, that, that seems to be a real tension point. It now. is a tension point. And, you know, Tim Russert, uh, who I worked with for 17 years, was the master at doing the big, long, tough, grilling interview. And sometimes I would swear we are never going to see this person again. <laughs> oh, my God. Sure enough, they would come back. Because it, the way he would do the interview, is very, it's tough, but it's also fair. I mean, never hitting below the belt. And, um, you know, a, a phrase was uh, coined, the Russert primary, where, you know, presidential candidates would have to do the stop at Meet the Press 
and sit for the you know the hour-long serious interview. I think over time that has diminished. There's less willingness of politicians to do that. Um, they would much rather, in you know this age of social media and YouTube, they can put their message out and totally go around the media. Um, they're very risk averse in that sense. They don't feel like they have to come and sit with us for a full hour and do a substantive, you know, uh, serious interview when they can, you know, buy ads, uh, go, you know, send out videos on YouTube, <coughs> have a social media um, way of communicating with voters, and they don't have to really submit to that. Do your guests demand to know what you're going to ask them before they will come on the show? Nope. Well, they would love to know what we're going to ask them, uh, but no, we never, never tell them what we're going to ask. And everything, I'm always very, um, very stern about. You know, everything is on the table when you agree to do an interview. I mean, I've had cases before where someone has said, you know, uh, the senator will do an interview, but only if you don't talk about blah blah blah. And we say, well, sorry, we, you know, we can't do that. And how do you go about preparing for the interview? Uh, I mean, from Tim Russert, mm -hmm. who was, as you say, mm -hmm. he was really masterful at it. Did he do all of his own questions, or did he have help in sort of con conceptualizing what he was trying to get at and what he was, how he was yeah. going to sort of work his he, way he to the had, thing? Yeah, that was the he had a, a legal background <laughs> and a political background, which I think both very much served him well. And so he approached an interview from a very lawyerly way of a cross-examination, if you will. So there was a lot of thought process in his head as we would sit down and, and go through the potential interviews. He was always, okay, well, this is their weakness. This is what we sort of need to try to expose, and let's think about how we get there. And, you know, we really came up with that concept of taking a graphic and putting it on the screen. You know, it used to be we would find a quote from somebody who had had changed their position, and we would say, you know, Senator, but, you know, four years ago you said completely the opposite. And the Senator would say, no, I didn't. And Tim would say, yes, you did. And no, I did. So was go back and forth for five minutes. So, you know, we came up with the concept, which you see a lot now, is we take the quote and we put it on the screen, and the viewer can see who said it when and how and the context. And we sort of eliminated that whole back and forth. But he would very much approach the interview in terms of what we needed to get out of it and how we were going to get it. And we would use the graphics and the tape to illustrate those points throughout the process. Do many of your guests get mad? Some of them do. Um, I remember Tim got in a big tiff with uh, Ross Perot. You <laughs> he always talked about that. Um, who uh, came on the program and wanted to talk about his ways to balance the budget. And then when Tim asked him for three specific ways he would do that, he said, what do you mean I have to give specifics? <laughs> and uh, he was not happy. But again, he came, he came back on the program much later as well. The, the thing about the shows that is most interesting to me mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. is that they are um, calculatedly in the service of this extreme partisanship. Mm -hmm. I mean, as you were telling me before yeah. we met, that people will not be in a place with someone who is going to make a different point of view, right. argument. They want to have it all to themselves, and they want to be able to be on their message, and they want to be able to you know, proselytize for their exactly. point of view. Is that something that is you know, adding to the partisanship? Is there a sort of way to, <coughs> to find a way um, 
back from some of this extreme partisanship and this kind of uh, yeah. I mean, there's much shows. less solution-oriented discussions that are going on on television. Yeah. Now. I mean, when I was first to meet the press, I mean, every two months we would have Dole and Mitchell, the minority and majority leader of the U.S. Senate, on Meet the Press to talk about issues, sit together, have a civilized conversation. That does not happen. When was the last time you remember ever? seeing Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell together um, talking on a television show. It doesn't happen. Um, so there is this um, exactly, you know, people, you want to have a debate about an issue, you want to have a solution-oriented discussion, and you can only get one side. The, sometimes there are specific senators that will only come on if they have the 15 minutes to themselves. Um, and then trying to get them to actually answer the question is a whole nother battle because, you know, they can come on with a very preset um, notion of what they want to talk about. They have their talking points. And you can ask whatever question you ask them, they will give you a total, a, an answer to a totally different question just to get out their talking well, points. Well, I mean, we had a time, an interview with Michelle Bachman one time where, I mean, it was almost as if David Gregory was speaking a different language because she was just answer. She just was on a talking point. She would not get off of it. Um, and, you know, it's frustrating on our end of things. And, and David was very good about saying, but the question I asked you was, but you can, you can only do that so many times before people think that the moderator is a jerk. And, um, and so that's frustrating. You know, you told me something that I think we ought to mention, and then we'll, we'll go to yeah. questions, because I think it's, it is kind of interesting. The first moderator mm -hmm. of Meet the Press was a woman. Yeah, her name was Martha Roundtree. And she was co-created the program with Lawrence Spivak uh, that started as a radio show in 1945. And they came up with this concept of doing a press conference of the air, of having a newsmaker interview and having a panel of three or four members of the press corps ask the questions. Has there been a woman moderator for Meet the Press since? There has not. But when are you going to get one? <laughs> I don't know. Well, except Savannah Guthrie. Who Savannah got filled in review. a couple weeks ago, and she, uh, she had filled in um, prior to that as well, and I think she's wonderful. Yeah. Do you think that, uh, what, I mean, what, uh, that's a serious question. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that? In 1947, the moderator of Meet the Press is a woman, and not since. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, um, this, certainly because they're not capable. I mean, we've had other Sunday morning shows. Um, Cokie Roberts did ABC. Um, Candy Crowley does CNN now. Um, Gwen Eiffel does Washington Week. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe hopefully in the next 10 years we'll, we'll see that. Um, you know, the moderatorship of Meet the Press also doesn't come open very often as well. I mean, Tim was a moderator for 17 years. Um, before that, Garrett Utley was there for several years. I mean, it's a, it's a program that's 65 years old and it's really only had nine, ten moderators. So. Let me open it to students first. Uh, if you're a student in this room and you'd like to pose a question, raise your hand. And if not, students, then I will open it to the floor. Yes. This is more of an NBC News mm -hmm. question, but how does the uh, downsizing of the news staff at NBC that we've read about, how does that in your mind affect the quality of uh, the news that we see university of issues that it covers and how it covers them? Yeah, I mean, we did go through a downsizing um, several years ago. I think we're at a pretty good stage now where there is definitely more investment. Um, we have a new owner in Comcast, and their attitude really is what do you need and how, how, you know, how are you going to turn this into 
um, you know, uh, more viewers, more revenue, but if you can prove that you're going to do that, then they have been willing to have that investment. Uh, and especially as we move um, toward more online, there's a lot of investment right now that we're doing in mobile technology, um, delivering our product. I mean, really, the future of news is going to be really on everybody's phone, and we need to be, you know, ready for that. So there, I, there were cuts backs a couple years ago, but um, right now, really actually hiring new people and really investing in new technology. Do you think the depth of investigative uh, reporting is suffering because of some of these cutbacks? I think that's very true, especially at smaller newspapers. I think at some of the big networks, we still have, luckily, very vibrant investigative units. NBC has put a big investment into ours over the last two years, hired some really great people, um, went into ABC and stole some people, in fact. Uh, so we have a very healthy investigative unit right now. Um, but I think where that's really come into play has been some of the smaller newspapers that no longer have, you know, these rich investigative units, which is a shame. And a lot of times what they're doing now is partnering with foundations like the Knight Foundation, other um, research arms to kind of actually, you know, do that sort of reporting. That's, yeah. Um, by the way, you ne neglected to mention Leslie Stahl, who is an early uh, Face Did the she Nation. do Face the Nation? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> as I prepare to launch into my 11th, God help me, presidential campaign, <laughs> um, I'm trying to assimilate what happened last time mm -hmm. and uh, assimilate the gen general trend mm -hmm. uh, away from giving us access. Yeah and indeed giving the public access. Mm -hmm. You know, Bill Clinton would do 10, 12 events a day because he needed all that love. <laughs> but uh, Mitt Romney would do one event a day. Obama would do one event a day. And they're very controlled yeah. to do events. So now, this isn't, yeah. I mean, the press question, yeah. it's, it's your new hat. Yeah. What kind of, what you're thinking about how your coverage of the next one is going to be different? Well, I mean, we've, you know, we have the embeds that are along with the campaign, and part of the frustration, and Peter did a, a great uh, piece for you all, um, a research project based on this, is that that whole inclination, exactly right, of the candidates, you know, restricting access, um, you know, only kind of speaking in their own bubble, very controlled events, not making them accessible. I mean, we went through a situation um, where we did not have an interview with Mitt Romney the entire campaign until the very last minute. It was, you know, actually right after the convention. Um, so, you know, it used to be that we would be able to have these very thoughtful, long interviews that they go completely around it. So um, I think what we have to try to focus on doing is how do we bring information, how do we enlighten our viewers um, and get as close to the candidates but and actually do that significant reporting, and I think that's a challenge, but technology, I think, can be on our side for that as well, but I think as people engage, um, we can harness some of that through our, you know, portals, if you will, um, and be able to communicate that to the candidates, um, but I do, you know, it is a trend that is actually very troubling that we have to give a lot of, of thought to. One of the things that Peter noted in his yeah. paper for us was how so many people who cover the campaigns are utter neophytes when it comes to campaign coverage and don't know anything about politics often. They're just really kids. They're really out of school. They just don't know much. Right, because they're the ones that will kind of go around with the camera and, and be able to have that sort of lifestyle 
of living. In Are you going to be able Canada. to persuade, you know, war horses like Joe Klein to go out and do that kind of thing? Look outfit Joe with the camera I'm out there. <laughs> <laughs> the Joe cam. <laughs> well, yeah. I am. I'm already planning my next road trip. Yeah. Good. So I, I actually still do it. Well, you're one of the very few who will do that. I mean, this is the thing that Peter was talking about in particular. But the, and the candidates don't engage with the reporters. Either on the I bus. Know. I mean, Joe remembers yeah. the days that you know the candidates would come back to the back of the bus and sit and talk off the record, and yeah. that you know Peter talked about that as Sometimes well. Sometimes it doesn't it was happen kind of anymore. Pathetic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Dukakis once asked me, "Can we go off the record?" And I said, "Sure." And he, he said, and I was really anticipatory because yeah. he was so buttoned up, yeah. and he said, "What do you think is happening here, Joe?" <laughs> <laughs> Help. <laughs> yeah. Um, Two, two questions about th this practice of yeah. letting everyone's uh, or Instagrams yeah. or uh, pictures come mm -hmm, in. Mm -hmm. uh, number one, well, three questions. Mm -hmm. Who has the rights to those? Are they ever compensated? Or are you just taking them for free? And do you, do you, can you do that in terms of the rights of that image? And then how can you verify, you know, that some Syrian rebel hasn't kind of set up yeah. a fake? Uh, massacre or whatever and sent you a picture. Yeah, we all, you know, we have a, a standards department that all of that kind of content gets run through. I mean, we saw a lot of that, you know, in Egypt, for example, where getting getting feeds in and not knowing where they're from. And, you know, there is a process set up to evaluate and try to uh, ascertain, you know, where these are coming from legitimate news sources. But in a situation um, like I mentioned, that the company that we have now that we're kind of developing that technology, you as a person on the scene, you know, by kind of submitting that interview would be releasing your rights to it. Um, so from that legal aspect, if, if you're broadcasting it to us, you're saying, um, and I'm sure that there's a disclaimer somewhere that you'll have to hit, but you're saying that, you know, we can be the recipient of that. Now, obviously, if there's, you know, if there's a plane crash and there there's people, you know, coming off of the plane like we saw, you know, a couple months ago, um, and you see, you know, you're able to see those sources of video, you can tell by if you're seeing five or six people with their cameras, you can, you know, make a decision as to, you know, what you're going to show, what's legitimate, you know, what's real, and then there's a conversation back with that person to you know, really try to, you know, show that they're actually there and that's what they're filming. But, you know, right now, the mechanism we have for that really is going on trolling Twitter. Um, and then people will broadcast that information out and then it'll be on nightly news that night. And, and, and is, it, is, it, is the main mechanism for vetting it whether you're getting a lot of the same kind of thing or, I mean, is, does, does the exclusivity make it less credible? Well, I mean, this would this would enable us to almost really be getting in live, so that there's not a delay in terms of the that turnaround. Like somebody has the video, and then oh, maybe they post it the next day, or they don't know where to post it, or we have to find it on Twitter. It's more of it that it's coming in live, and you're able to make a decision mm -hmm. about it. Have you had any experience with that? No, no. I think it. I mean, it it almost strikes me as becoming the Huffington Post of, of video. I mean, in a way. I mean, I can see. I can see a lot of problems with it, and I haven't had any experience. Um, one of which is, what if, I mean, what if people are submitting <coughs> it to four or five news outlets? Do mm -hmm. you care if 
if you know they're going to shoot it out to all of your comp competitors? I don't know. I mean, I think the the goal would be actually just you know getting the video and being able to show people, yeah. and especially in a situation where there's breaking news and there's an, something going on, and you don't have a reporter there. I mean, obviously, the day two or day three of the story, you know, we'll have people there, but it's just in the moment when something is breaking um, that you know that video is very valuable. Yes. Yeah, I want to come back to your point about um, having having ha uh, Reed and, and McConnell at the table yes. together, and, that's yes. very, and, and that it's very hard to get yes. them together. Yeah. Um, do you see a role for the media to not just by your, by your own network, but mm -hmm. to join forces with other networks to actually get them at the table? Because in these times, that could be like a really important signal. To get them at the yeah, I mean, I don't think there'd be a partnerships with other new, other direct competitors. But you know, I mentioned this debate that we did with Facebook as as a way to um, really entice the candidates to do that debate. I think having Facebook as our partner and that really helped in that situation. So that I mean, that's the example that comes to mind. But I don't think we'll move toward a situation where um, you know two television networks are you know. Combining to present something. I mean, we do have a situation now, of course, where we have pooled interviews, uh, and that's for a matter of resources. If there's an event going on, you know, we'll have a, a pool system that's developed among all the networks that will send one camera and everyone has access to that footage. Um, there's a, you know, White House presidential pool that operates that, that way, that each network has a turn um, that that happens on foreign trips and it happens in daily coverage as well and then you know sometimes that happens has happened on the campaign trail we'll form a an, uh, for example with CNN a lot of times we uh, they're covering an event that we're interested in Ted Cruz is speaking in Iowa and CNN has a camera there and we pull the situation so they give us our video and then we take Ted Cruz's next appearance so it's more resource oriented more than editorial let, let me let me ask you to, to dig Dane a little deeper in that issue of like the McConnell and, uh, and Harry, and Harry Reid, yeah. why wouldn't they go on together? I would think in a way uh, they would want to go on together because that would mean that the other one would not have the field entirely to himself. They would be able to say, you know, Harry Reid is a damn liar and this is not what I said and this is not what we think and this is not, I mean, I mean the, the point is it would be something that would give each of them the opportunity to respond instead right. of being... You sound like a know. great television booker. <laughs> we should put him on the phone. <laughs> well, I mean, so, but obviously that's not the way they think about it. So how do they think about it? You will have to ask them. I would love to get inside, inside some of these heads. I, I don't know. I mean, um, you know, and, and a lot of times, too, we'll have a situation where somebody will only come on and they will only, they will only agree to come on if they have the last word or the first word. Uh, and, you know, this is some, very painful sometimes to have to deal with, you know, booking a show and, you're, you know, this person only wants to come on and go ask for it. I mean, I remember sometimes with Tim we would say, Tim would say, well, let's offer him the last word, but then at the end of the show, we can go back to the other person, so they sort of, it, it it's crazy, like the negotiations that go on with some of this, and everybody has their, I mean, sure, it's a, a pile of media consultants that are advising the candidate, um, no, you have to do it this way, you have to do it this way, but there's just not a willingness. Callie, you've had plenty of opportunity yeah. to deal with egos on <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm going to ask a question I'm sure you've been asked before, and I don't mean it to sound cranky, but I have to keep asking uh -oh. it, okay. <laughs> you know, every time. 
Um, there is forensic evidence um, that crops up every year, every so many months, where mm -hmm. we look at um, the diversity or lack thereof mm -hmm. on all of the major Sunday morning policy shows, mm -hmm. and it's still horrible. Although I um, would say it's gotten better. But. I, I was going to say it's gotten better, okay. but still, so many times I just turn it on and I look to see who that panel is, and if it's all white guys and I like white guys, yep. I'm turning it off. I, I can I pretty much tell you that no in the sense. last several years, <laughs> I think you'd be hard-pressed to find and meet the press that had four white guys I just saw it. one of you. I turned it off. On Meet the Press? <coughs> I guess, absolutely. Well, I left in July, so I can't speak <laughs> to all that, but um, I... I, I it maybe one or two times over the last three two years I, we would have that situation. Well, but I, it's gotten better. But uh, to your point, and I take it um, a, a lot of times too. Uh, we're also criticized in terms of the newsmaker guests on the program oh, um, I, 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 as as well. And and sometimes you're in a situation where um, you know you want to have a guest on who is going to move a story, who is going to be the newsmaker, and a lot of that times it is a presidential candidate, it is a um, committee chairman, or it is a member of leadership. And um, unfortunately, in some of those cases, uh, they don't represent the diversity that is America in those positions. I agree with that, yeah. um, and, I understand, and I've heard that yeah. over the years. I am speaking specifically on that which you have control yeah. over, which is the round table mm -hmm. discussion. Mm -hmm. um, Chris Hayes, over on your partner sure. MSNBC, got into a lot of trouble because he said, we count now because we've decided it makes no sense. So Wait, I'm sorry, I missed that. You mean he counts? He counts how many women, how many black people, how many? We count. And that's how we've mm -hmm. gotten a richer look at our table. Yeah. And I just wonder what is the direction what is understood by the bookers, because I understand that they're working in, sometimes they're working in that bifurcated situation where they say, well, the president's the president, yeah. Mitch McConnell's Mitch yeah. McConnell, that's right, 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 right. On the round table, table, that's all your choice. Yeah, and, and there are a lot of different decisions that go into putting a group like that together, and it's not just um, diversity among race, it's diversity among gender, it's diversity among age, frankly, it's diversity among ideology, you want to have a left and a right represented, and a lot of times there's, you know, only certain amounts of ways to cut that pie up. Um, on, a, on when you're putting together a group. I do, I can tell you just in terms of what I try to do with the Meet the Press is to really try to make sure those panels are balanced in all of those different ways every week. Yes, sir. Uh, have you ever felt that uh, this kind of Sunday talk show program uh, are in a certain degree uh, threatened by uh, social media and also by other mm -hmm. online digital media? Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you see the future of those kind of uh, uh, you know, those Sunday talk show programs? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Do you still feel that, that they were gonna, they're, will be around in 10 years or they will be around uh, you know, in a very different form? Well, I'm hopeful that there will always be that appetite among people to be able to have listen to a civilized discourse and debate on the issues. Um, but I do feel, and it's not just Twitter, or online that I think is a threat, but I do think that there's, you know, there's so many different other avenues for politicians, candidates, et cetera, to get out there and make news. And it's not just going around on the YouTube, but it's also on cable as well. Um, and some, you know, uh, television interviews on cable that are more ideologically in match with that particular guest, um, that it is um, more advantageous for a person to go on with um, and do a, a more kind of friendly interview 
um, rather than sort of have that tough accountability questioning. So I do feel like that's probably our biggest threat. I mean, you know, it was used to be the fact that, you know, somebody had news to make, they would wait until Sunday to news show to make it. And that's there's so many different options now. And I think our challenge in terms of Sunday morning is, is really to think about that and try to figure out ways to, um, you know, to have the politicians be able to make news on their show, stay accountable, but then to also provide some of that analysis in the program as well. Um, when you can't have that hour-long one-on-one interview with the presidential candidate, that you can have, you know, a field of great reporters and analysts and people that are covering it to, um, you know, talk about what's going on and provide context as well. Yes, uh, Betsy, you have the great advantage of having a generation uh, <clears throat> where uh, women uh, started out in one position. You look at it and you see the changes. What strikes you out of the changes that you've seen, and what does it mean for students who are looking, female students who are looking at this career? How is it different, and what's changing? I have spent all, I spent last week at, um, two, two days at the most powerful women's conference of Fortune magazine. Then I spent a weekend um, in Vancouver at an international women's forum. And then I went to dinner last night with a friend who was doing kind of a Sheryl Sandberg circle. So I am so womened out at this point. <laughs> I almost didn't want to it's painful to even think about the question. Um, but it has, I think it has changed. I, I was very fortunate. Um, at Meet the Press, and the woman who was the executive producer for a long time um, was a woman who had been at the show for many years. Of course, you remember Betty Dukert. And so I, I was very fortunate of always having that as a role model and in my professional career. And then, of course, Tim Russert could not have been um, more of a supportive and loyal person uh, in terms of women. Um, he was always very encouraging to me. Um, you know, I have a 12-year-old daughter, and I, you know, I remember, you know, he kept saying, when are you going to have kids? When are you going to have I mean, to him, it was the most important thing that somebody able to experience the joy of, of having a child. And I would say, I'm not ready yet. Leave me alone. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, uh, he was just so excited, you know, when I, you know, telling him that I was going to have a baby and he would uh, I couldn't decide I knew my child was going to either be Eric or Ella and an E name and so he called it baby E for for those uh, nine months and he was he but he was very supportive of the whole process and uh, you know I took a maternity leave and I would still be engaged on the telephone and and helping him think things out through so I've I've been a little bit of an exception in that in that sense is that I've, I've been very very lucky I will say that um, where I've seen issues, I mean, for example, um, at NBC, you know, there really, there's been times where I've been in meetings, uh, and the current situation is not the case, but where I've been the only female executive producer of a show, of a network television show. Um, and you sort of feel that, I feel it a little bit more in New York, frankly, than I do in Washington. Maybe it's just I'm more comfortable in my Washington environment, but I feel it a little bit more in a New York situation. But I think women these days have really been able to find some really good sort of supportive atmosphere among women. I mean, I just mentioned I had been to those conferences, and the messaging out of that was, you know, helping other women along the way and providing mentorships to people. And, you know, Madeleine Albright has a great phrase is that, you know, there's nothing, uh, there's a special place in hell reserved for, you know, women who don't help other women. <laughs> and um, I think these days there is such that awareness, and Cheryl Sandberg in her book talking about leaning in, 
um, I think it sparks really good dialogue and conversations among among young women. Could you happen again? What's that? Could you happen again? Given the same, like another you, could it happen again? Sure. I'm just, yeah, you know, yeah. given their circumstances. More you, more people. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I've been working with women editors for 40 yeah. years. We have a new, our new president actually of NBC News is a woman mm -hmm. um, who just started a couple months ago. So it's been, it's been exciting to work with her as well. Trey. Um, hey, Trey. Wondering about the Jonathan Society. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I uh, wanted to go back to the question about the future of the Sunday morning show. Yeah. I'm curious, setting aside the business model. Sure. I realize, you know, there's that. But with online and, mm -hmm. and DVRs and things like that, are you actually seeing more people watching parts or all of the Sunday morning show? I mean, I'm just curious. Yeah, like and it's a good and it's a good question because we are sort of live and die by our rating number, our Nielsen number, but that does not take into account so many people that are watching the program online, watching clips of it online. We're really not at the point yet where we're counting online viewing in kind of our whole rating number. And, you know, I remember there was a big, you know, internal debate, you know, with the advent of, of even just podcasting, you know, whether we were going to make the show available outside of our very strict little window of a Sunday morning. And, we, you know, we decided that we should have this new great tool called a podcast, which seems ancient to even think about it now. And I, I remember um, telling Tim when we were going to read uh, on the teleprompter, you know, watch our Meet the Press podcast. You can download it on... Uh, you know, after the show, and so I had the teleprompter going for Tim to read the script, and he would watch our podcast, and after he said, what is a podcast? Why am I reading this? And I tried to explain it to him, and being the very competitive person that he was, of course, the next day he said, how did the podcast do? And I said, well, actually, we were the fifth most, you know, downloaded podcast, and of course, he said, what was number one? <laughs> what was number two? I said, well, actually, it was porn and music. <laughs> and so then he would laugh and say every time he saw, you know, a little old lady in her, in her garden gardening with her, her uh, uh, ear, uh, uh, he, listening to her iPod, he would think, what is she listening to? Mm -hmm. So, uh, but, but that was very early on we made that, we made that decision to make the show more accessible. And I think um, we're moving more toward a model very similar to how NBC uh, broadcast the Olympics, where you were able to, if you were a cable subscriber, you know, you had to, I don't know if any of you guys did this on your iPads, but you were able to input your information and watch it online. And then that, that way there was also a monetization of it. And so I think uh, you'll see a lot of in news programming moving to that model where you'll be able to, I think it's called TV Everywhere. Yeah, um, I watch a lot. Yeah. That's how I watch a lot of TV. Yeah, and so a lot of our news content, I think, will be going on those platforms so that you can watch entire episodes of news programs. So this is all through through broadband streaming and This is all through streaming, yeah. Yeah, yeah but, the, but the business model is still tied to the ratings, but the overall right. viewers, in theory, are impacting more people now than... You know, than those who would just get up and watch on Sunday morning. Right, and it's also much younger people. And so I've always thought it was very important to, you know, even if we're not getting the credit, so to speak, of an eyeball watching, you know, on a Nielsen box, that we're getting young people at least familiar with the concept of the show so that, you know, when they do have the luxury of, you know, sitting at home with no kids screaming and all the other stuff years down the line that they are able to watch then you, you, know, you still have that have that viewer. So I've always thought it was important. You know, and even if it's, you know, watching a two-minute clip, that at least the concept of what Meet the Press is, what it stands for, is out there for people. Yes. Yes, I'd like to build on the question of, yeah. um, could there be another you mentoring? Mm -hmm. 
your own background. Uh, since Woodward and Bernstein, you know, there was a lot of interest in becoming a journalist. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it's narrowed the positions available, mm -hmm. it appears, except these alternative. And I wonder if you would share your background and some of the people who helped you along the way and even helped you land your internship, what that took, and how you moved upward. Mm -hmm. And so much, I think, of journalists now, too, it's, it's changing in the sense where the, the people that are getting hired are really uh, students that can sort of do it all, that, you know, can shoot videotape, that can edit, that can be sort of the one-man band. We're really moving toward toward that model, which I think opens up a lot of positions to people, but and it may, can make them more marketable. And I always tell students, especially journalism, you know, students that are want to be in journalism and they come and, you know, what should I study? I say, don't study just journalism. Really, um, you know, be an expert. Find your area of expertise and study that, whether it's politics, whether it's business, whether it's international relations or a language or sports, that, you know, find your niche and become a mini-expert on that. I mean, I studied politics in college, and that was really my entree. I grew up in New Orleans, um, Louisiana, where politics is sort of sport, and I was always, always interested in politics and knew I wanted to come to Washington, D.C., and so I went to American University and studied politics politics and thought I would go into law school and then maybe go into politics in some form. I had done, uh, the great thing about going to school in Washington, of course, similar to Boston, is you have a lot of access to do different internships. And so I, I did an internship on the Hill, and I did an internship at a law firm, and then my senior year in college, um, Meet the Press was literally, our Washington Bureau is down the street from where I went to school. And so I remember, you know, in the Career Center kind of flipping through the internship books and saw an internship at Meet the Press, and I thought, well, this is great. I can sleep late and walk to work. It's so <laughs> convenient, right, as a college senior. <laughs> and so I applied for the internship and got it, and Tim Russert actually started at Meet the Press at the same time. And, um, and so then I just kind of got bitten by the journalism bug, but it was not in what I thought I would be doing with my life. I realized I love politics, but I am not a political person. I like the debate of why you think something, why you think something else. Um, and I, I, I like deciphering that and figuring out and doing research. So it turned out, you know, just to be a great opportunity for me. Um, and, and Tim would, you know, pushing me along and, you know, get, he had that great enthusiasm about him that just attracted me to covering politics. And then I went back and got my master's in journalism. Um, part-time on the weekends, mainly just to kind of have some of that expertise in terms of technical production at television. I think much uh, now we're much better about, you know, giving people training in the workplace in terms of technology, but back then it was sort of sink or swim. Um, and so I, I didn't know how to edit videotape or how to direct a show, and so I was able through my uh, master's program to kind of gain some of that confidence and meet the press at the time was, you know, Tim used to joke we would sort of turn on the lights and sit down the guest and there they would be, but we didn't have a lot of heavy production aspects to it. And so then once I, you know, started learning some of those skills, we could kind of take the show from there and really developed, you know, a, you know, extensive taped open of the show and a graphics look and some of those more production techniques. So, but I, I think, you know, as I mentioned, Tim and, and Betty Dukert were, um, were really instrumental in my uh, career development. Yes. You talked about uh, technology mm -hmm. uh, enabling <coughs> mm -hmm. 
one thing that would really help me in my responsibilities as a citizen mm -hmm. would be to have fact checking in real time mm -hmm. while these people are doing it. Mm -hmm. Don't you know, we know that Chuck Todd's not going to do that? But have you considered that? Have you considered annotation, <laughs> fact checking? Uh, yeah, I mean, and there's, you know, in terms of sometimes fact checking, as you probably know from reading a lot of different facts checks, can be very subjective. Sometimes things are not black and white in terms of facts. I mean, the ones, you know, I think we do a pretty good job of if something is said incorrectly on the show, you know, correcting it maybe the next time the person is on or the next week if something's like very blatantly. Um, not correct. Uh, I do think sometimes when you get into some of these fact checks, um, you know, three um, three up arrows, three down arrows, three Pinocchios, whatever you want to call them, it can be very subjective. And I think there's a lot of, of good um, outfits out there that are doing that. And we certainly, you know, make the show available, make the transcripts available for those outfits to do that. I, I, right now, we're not set up to um, fact check everything that's said on the show. Um, but you know, I do think we are able to, if there's you know some sort of blatant inaccuracy, come back and. Well, I think that thing you were talking about. I can remember many times seeing Tim Russer do this. You know, you said so and so. I never said that. Right. And then yeah. blam. Right. It's there, a sense you know, of accountability. You know, that that for is candidates. a fact check kind right. of. But that's anticipating somebody is going to. You had that already prepared though. You don't. Right, you have that prepared because you also have a sense when we do the research for the interviews, we're reading a lot of what that you know candidate has said, their record, and we can kind of do, uh, have a sense of where they're going to try to wiggle out of something, you know, where are those points where um, maybe they're, you know, trying to kind of spin in one direction, mm -hmm. and we kind of have that ammunition ready to go as well. Well, yeah. yes? I was just going to say, I mean, you must have been just devastated lost Tim Russert and obviously who he was was mm -hmm. partly his team and who worked with him. But I just wondered, I mean, I just always thought his Meet the Press was an oasis of sanity. Mm -hmm. And he was, he may have been very competitive, but he established this warmth and, mm -hmm. you know, kindness. And I just wondered, um, when you look at journalists mm -hmm. today, either in any medium, regardless of technical skills, if there's anyone who you think is exemplary in the way that he was in terms of fairness and relentless pursuit of the truth and I always felt at the end of the show that he got to some truth that, and, and you guys explained everything in a way that was easy to understand complex yeah you know. and yeah he you know he had that enthusiasm for politics too where he he loved it you know and he sort of um, you know nothing would get him more excited than oh we're gonna use this fact or we're gonna use this graphic or oh let's you know get excited about this interview and and he kind of slept and eat and breathed all of that so um, it's hard for me to actually say if there's people out there because it's, yeah <laughs> but not just to nail the person but also to expose the truth expose you know? the truth and have that sense of humanity that I think he he really did um, and he was able to connect with people and even though he <laughs> would do a tough interview you know he would do a go bills or something at the end of the show and say oh he's a nice guy <laughs> um, so I think it was a rare it was a rare combination um, and it's you know it's part of what you know made him so special to so many people but how do, how do people like you view is all the PBS News Hour? I think it's a treasure. I mean, talking about getting Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell together, I yeah. guess that's where it would 
first? Yeah, I, I mean, 60 Minutes, to their credit, I think did get those two a couple of years ago, and I don't think it actually went well. Um, but, yeah, I, I love the News Hour, and it's a place where, you know, especially you can really get in-depth on some significant issues um, that you don't also see every place else. And Jim Lehrer said once, uh, you can be boring and you do not You can get it. away with it, yeah, yeah, exactly. How did, how did the Washington Press Corps respond to this recent, you know, book? about the Washington Press Corps. Mm-hmm. Oh, the, Mark Leibowitz, uh, uh, Our Town. Yeah. This Town. This Town, Our yeah. Town, yeah. Mm-hmm. Crazy, you know, nice crazy to Town. Nice to you, though, that's yeah. Was it? Yeah, I yeah. escaped, I guess, okay. Um, you know, it was just, it's, it was sort of bizarre for people to kind of read about themselves, <laughs> and I, I was amazed, and, and Mark is actually a friend, but I was amazed that people would be interested in reading about it. I thought... You know, when I read when I first got it, I thought nobody is going to care about this cast of crazy characters, <laughs> and you sort of need an index to figure out who's who and what they're doing. So, you know, it's done very well for him, and I was I was the first skeptic to say I don't think anybody did it buy ring. This book. Did it ring true? Sure, there were some aspects of it that are true, and you know what Mark is able to do so well is kind of shine a spotlight some places, and you know. Um, show people how you know how things happen for for good and for bad I mean you know in any industry you get the good and the bad do you think that I mean he made it sound very clubby and very sort of you know I mean is that the world that you occupy I know you've got it is a, a very yeah it is an incestuous world among media and the politics and what goes on in Washington and sometimes you can get cynical about that um, and that's why I like to travel now that I have a long leash and I'm not doing Meet the Press anymore, to travel on weekends and get out into the real world with real people uh, because sometimes um, you can, you know, just want to bang your head up against the wall. So what day off did you have when you were doing Meet the Press? I technically had off Mondays and Tuesdays, but there was really sort of nothing like, you know, we'd constantly be booking the show. It was, it was pretty much a seven-day-a-week job. So I'm enjoying actually having weekends now and mm. doing some fun things. Yes. Um, uh, first of all, I can't remember the last time I was on a panel, and I do these things pretty regularly. That was all white males. Um, no, Probably don't not, watch as closely as that. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. No, just saying. I do watch very closely, and it's been at least 15 years. Uh, the, the kind, the the lack, you know, the the thing that the thing that I worry about us mm-hmm. missing is this. You know, when you see, um, I just saw recently a chart of the attitudes of the American people, the political attitudes, and it's a standard bell curve. You have a, you know, larger conservative tail than you have a liberal tail, but most people are in the middle. Yeah. And then if you look at uh, a similar bell curve of, you know, uh, politicians in Washington, it's a reverse oh, bell curve. Of course, curve. yeah. We just so, did a survey with Esquire on that very how, issue. How and, and when I go out in the yeah, country, people yeah. are very frustrated about the amount of time we give to people like the Tea Party. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the question is, how do we how do how do we rectify that? How are you how are you going to try and address that? I, I think also, I mean, part of the problem too is you you have people that only want to exist in their own bubble, yeah. that only want to um, watch a news program or a news channel that is regurgitating their own views back to them. Um, the folks that, you know, woke up the day after the election and was, like, shocked that Mitt Romney lost, like, didn't see that coming. Um, people that um, 
you know, they, that's, that's, I think, the danger is how do you make and how do you make relevant sort of more of a mainstream both sides discussion on an issue in a, in a climate where um, people only want to read blogs that they agree with. But it's with. not just both sides. I mean, it's, um, it's, there, there, there's a, a tremendous desire for consensus, and there is a fairly strong consensus about a lot of issues in this country. Do you think that there's an, like an, an apathy more in the center on some of the political issues? Um, I mean, because I've been wondering about that, that question. In you the know. past, that was really true, but I think that a, since 9-11, but especially since the financial crash, I think uh -huh. that there's a lot more interest. And right now, I mean, Peter can speak to this better than mm -hmm. I can, I think that people are really, you know, involved and frustrated. Are people involved and frustrated? <laughs> I know they're okay. frustrated, but I just don't, I'm not sure if they're involved, uh, is the question I... Well, not, let's say that at least they're following Where is everything. that? Where is the vocal center? Uh, the vocal center is spread across the whole spectrum. But I mean, look at our last poll. Yeah. I mean, they got the message and they sent it back pretty strongly. And, the know, Tea Party. Yeah, well, I'm also saying, yeah, against the Tea Party, yeah. but against the whole system, mm -hmm. the direction Election. of the country. Yeah. What was the question we had about? Would you toss out all sixty uh, percent of the yeah. American public? Would toss out all if there was a lever on the ballot that they could pull that would uh, replace every single member in Congress, including their own. Yeah. They yeah. would. Uh, they would hit that lever. It's the first time we've gone over sixty percent on that. Yeah, that to me that was amazing. And how many? How, what what was the number that you got? Sixty percent. Sixty percent. Yeah. yeah. But is there a willingness for people to kind of to vote in that respect? I, I mean, I guess too, and you get into the whole issue of gerrymandering and how congressional districts mm -hmm. are drawn, and how you know what politicians really fear now is is the primary much more so yeah. than the general election, and we're in, you know we end up in the system where um, you know. It's are you more guys going to cover primaries now? I, oh, yeah. I think there'll be some of the most interesting that's ones out the, there. That's going to yeah. be where the races are. Can, Wyoming, can Kentucky. A, a closed question. Sure. Which is, okay, you're in a new position, yeah. 2016. How are you going to cover 2016 that will look better, different than 2012, 2008? Uh, there's everything that's happening, et cetera. What's yeah, I think different? it has to be more accessible to people. I think our news coverage has to not just be on the on the nightly news and the Today Show. It's got to be, and, and we're doing a lot of investing in our NBCnews.com, um, more outlets for our reporting places, um, mobile technology so that, um, you know, viewers and voters can, you know, see up close candidates, even if it's events or it's analysis on things that, um, you know, has a chance to respond and be engaged to people and have more platforms to put our product than, than we have in the past. It's, it's really how I kind of see what we're going into in 2016, and we'll have, you know, this great race on both sides that will really, I think, generate a lot of excitement <coughs> and, and people's interest Do you as think well. the Democratic primary will be a race? Well, it depends on who's in it, I guess. Right? Well, if Hillary's in it, do you think it'll be a race? I think she will have uh, some opposition. <coughs> I don't think, I don't, I, it's hard to see that it would be anybody um, that would be a real threat to her at this point. But I'm sure there will be, you know, she'll have some sort of challenge from the left <coughs> to, you know, somebody who'll want to be able to be in debates with her to kind of have that mm -hmm. platform. I don't know if it's a Russ Feingold type or someone. Brian Schweitzer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Betsy Fisher-Martin, I'm sorry. You, you married... Uh, Jonathan Martin, yeah. who's also a political journalist mm -hmm. in the New York Times. 
A best part about what? Being married to a guy that's in your same yeah. bodywork, in your same field, knows the same people. It's actually, it's it's nice because we're not competitors. And he's, you know, print, I'm television. So, um, you know, we have kind of a constant ongoing discussion about politics, which is fun. I have a 12-year-old daughter who does not like to sit at the dinner table and listen to all this business <laughs> either. Can you all talk about something normal? Um, and, and, you know, so far, you know, it's been great because we were able to travel together. Um, and cover events together and, um, you know, be in Iowa, New Hampshire and, and that type of thing. And, and, you know, I have a sense of what he goes through when he's working on deadline. He has a sense of what I go through when I'm working with, you know, layers of issues. Um, and so it's kind of that healthy uh, relationship that I think is important. Healthier than James and Mary? I don't know about that. Those guys, we, they would sometimes, you know, come on the show and they, we'd pick them up in a car. They'd come together and leave in separate cars. <laughs> We we booked one car to bring them and two cars to take them home. What, I'll tell you, one of the best things I was when I was at the New York Times. My wife was at Time Magazine, and the first dinner party we ever gave together in this new apartment that we had in New York, I was not present, and she didn't get mad. Yeah, she understood. Yeah, we have good tolerance. <laughs> I, I have tolerance for his some of his stuff, but not. not other stuff.